This is Fix It. I'm Nishant. And I'm Kevin. Today, we're talking about the schism on the left on how we respond to dog whistle politics with Professor Ian Haney-Lopez from the UC Berkeley School of Law. For the last decade, Professor Haney-Lopez's research has focused on the use of racism as a class weapon in electoral politics and how to respond. In his latest book, Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections, and Saving America, Ian explains Trump's complex relationship with dog whistling and further develops the race class response. Ian has published four books and two anthologies and has been a visiting professor at Yale, NYU, and Harvard. He lives in Richmond, California, but beyond all of his academic accomplishments, his most illustrious victory to date is tolerating Kevin as a law school student. I'm sure I was quite a rough student, but all that said, Professor, welcome to the show. And I guess if you could just help us start by defining what this schism looks like and how it pertains to responding to dog whistle politics. Yeah, happy to. And thanks very much to you, Kevin and Team Nishan. I'm really glad to be able to join you both. So let's start first with dog whistle politics, which is the intentional effort to trigger racial hatred but through the use of code so that you can pretend that you're not doing any such thing. And also importantly, so your audience can tell themselves that their fears and resentments are common sense rather than rooted in racism. And I want to define it this way so that we can look at phrases like illegal alien or terrorist, gangbanger, super predator, law and order, or American heartland, make America great again, um, American patriots, all of those terms on their surface are, are uh, um, silent about race. That's the code because all of them gain their emotional power by triggering racist stereotypes. Okay. Um, and, and here's, let me just emphasize this because I think a lot of people, when they hear the term dog was a politics, they, they focus on the code and, and clearly the code is important. But what I want people to focus on is, code in the service of triggering ugly racial hatreds. And this is different from simply politicians who speak in code, right? Because some people have said, well, you know, Barack Obama sometimes uses the phrase, we shall overcome. And that resonates differently with African-American audiences. Isn't he speaking in code? Isn't he dog whistling? He's surely using a phrase that has a different resonance with different audiences, but he is not intentionally triggering racial hatreds. Donald Trump is, right? And it's not just Donald Trump. This has been something that has been going on in the Republican Party since 1963 with Barry Goldwater, then Richard Nixon uh, with Law and Order, Forrest Bussing, Ronald Reagan, Welfare Queens, all the way up, uh, George Bush's um, uh, War on Terror, right? This is, this is a 50-year-plus history of dog whistling. And the important point to see here, and, and first, let's, let's also be clear, Bill Clinton did it too, right? So this, this is primarily a phenomenon with Republicans, but sometimes Democrats um, trying to figure out how to respond have decided that their best response is imitation. We're gonna set that aside for right now. That is not so much on the table right now, but Democrats have to, progressives have to figure out how to respond to five decades of dog whistling. 
and there's been a very important split in how Democrats respond. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna distinguish between two camps. One camp I'm gonna call the class left, and one camp I'm gonna call the race left. So the class left, these are folks who recognize that when you call out dog whistle politicians for triggering racial fears, when you call them a racist, when you call them a bigot, it actually backfires. And part of the reason it backfires is because they're using code. And the whole design of the code is to allow them to deny that that's what they're doing, right? So people would say of Reagan and his welfare queen comments, hey, that's racist. And he'd say, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Or we've all heard Donald Trump say, I'm the least racist person there is, right? So it's simply part of the structure of dog whistling. Um, but it's also the case that many people understand these fears about terrorists or law and order or fully funding the police or hardworking taxpayers. They do understand that as common sense and not as racism. So when you say to them, Donald Trump's a racist and you're a racist for supporting him, that actually redoubles their support for Donald Trump, right? So the class left understands that dynamic and responds by saying, okay, if we call out dog whistle politicians for being racist, we lose support, let's ignore race. Let's ignore racial division. Let's ignore dog whistling as a strategy. Let's focus on something that unites us. What unites us? Affordable health care, quality education, the fight for 15, right? So this is why I call them the class left. They, they say, let's focus on class. Let's talk about class, but we should be crystal clear the class left strategy is a racial strategy. It's a racial strategy of staying silent on race and emphasizing something else. So that's one side. Now increasingly there's another side and we can call them the race left. These are folks concerned primarily with racial justice for communities of color. And, and they're looking around and saying, you know, these politicians, they're not just describing black and brown people um, as terrorists or, or, or as um, uh, gangbangers. They're actually building a machinery of government violence against our communities. We must name this. We must contest this. Do we recognize this will alienate some folks? Yes. Is that the reason not to name it? No. We need to call out racism and bigotry in politics, even though we know this is going to alienate some voters. This is going to backfire, right? So this is both sides are saying calling out dog whistle politics for racism is going to cost us some votes. And the class left responds by saying, so let's not do it. And the race left responds by saying, hey, those people are probably racist anyway, we don't care, we gotta call this out. And that's, that's the split on the left that I'm hoping to address. So what are the practical consequences, would you say, Professor, of having these two different approaches to calling out dog whistle politics? Democrats keep losing. <laughs> Could you elaborate on that? <laughs> sure, you know, it's like, um, um, what dog whistling has done is it has broken the democratic slash new deal coalition that helped return democrats to power for decades um, with a few exceptions eisenhower mainly um, 
But that old New Deal coalition, that was the white working class and African-Americans and coastal liberals. Um, uh, and even when you had a Republican like Eisenhower win, he won by adopting New Deal values, values of an activist government that regulates the marketplace, redistributes wealth downward from the very top and provides ladward, ladders of upward mobility, right? That was the consensus uh, the political consensus that not only repeatedly returned Democrats to power, and, and let me just be crystal clear, the main point here is not let's elect Democrats. The main point here is let's elect politicians who actually believe that they work for regular Americans and not for corporations. Let's elect, let's elect politicians, I don't care what party, let's elect politicians who believe that government has an important role to play in regulating the economy, redistributing wealth outward, and building routes of upward mobility for all of us. Let's try and do that. Now, historically, that was the Democratic Party. But what dog whistling did is it pulled away the white working class. It said to the white working class, vote to defend your racial position even if that means you're voting for what used to call itself the party of big business, right? And now th that has been a tectonic shift in American politics over the last 50 years. And the measure of that shift is uh, on one level, the incredible upward siphoning of wealth that we've seen for the last 50 years, the, right? Levels of wealth inequality in the United States we haven't seen since the era of the robber baron, effectively undoing um, the, the, the great strides to a vibrant middle class accomplished by the New Deal. Um, or you can think about the strength of unions or what has happened to pensions. Um, for, for your generation, you might think about all the student debt you're carrying because 30 or 40 years ago, public education was understood as a public good that should be supported and financed by the public. We, we understood, we knew, we believed in a project of government creating routes of upward mobility, though that required high levels of taxation for corporations and for businesses. That's gone, and that is gone because of the success of dog whistle politics. Now, there have been some exceptions in terms of Bill Clinton getting elected, but again, he got elected because he himself practiced this dog whistling. And I should add, he himself shifted the Democratic Party away from concern with most working families and towards allegiance and dependence on Wall Street, on big financial interests. And I think Barack Obama provides another example. Um, I think it's important that o Obama is elected in the midst of profound economic and military crises in the country, and also that when Obama is reelected, he becomes the first president, the first American president to be reelected with less support than with which he originally won, right? So Obama managed to, to break out of the basic dog whistle dynamics, but he didn't solve it, and he didn't fully escape it, and Donald Trump is the sort of um, payback for that. So, so one, one indicia of the consequences of dog whistling is this economic inequality. The other is the incredibly high levels of government violence against communities of color. Um, when we think about movement for black lives and the police killing of black and brown people, um, or more generally mass incarceration, 
uh, and still yet mass deportation, the caging of children on the borders, the systematic surveillance against Muslim communities, um, the almost complete disinvestment from communities of color, um, rural, on reservations in cities. That is a consequence not of white racism in the culture in general, not, it's not simply a vestige of Jim Crow from 50 or 60 years ago that somehow through inertia has continued in the present. It is a direct consequence of politicians who've been winning elections through telling stories of racial fear and threat and then governing accordingly, right? So th this is what we're up against. And to be quite blunt, progressives have not figured out how to defeat this. And to the extent that they haven't figured out how to defeat it, they cannot do more than, think about what, what, what's, you know, our, our best case right now, our best case right now, fall of 2020 is Biden gets elected. Hopefully he, he carries both the House and the Senate. They're gonna have to ignore the filibuster to have any chance of getting anything done. Um, they're gonna have to, um, uh, unpack the courts to have any chance of having whatever legislation they passed upheld. Um, is he likely to do that? Does he have the political support to do that? Will many Democrats feel vulnerable politically and so they, they won't actually form a cohesive um, voting block in Congress? Pretty likely. In other words, we need a politics that gets a, a progressive party to 58 60% of, of the population of, the, of, of voters regularly. Democrats can win some elections, but they haven't figured out how to get back up to the sorts of majorities that they once had, the sorts of majorities that supported the New Deal consensus. That's the challenge we're confronting. And so, Professor, the Democrats have long talked about themselves as the big tent party, but it sounds like we've got this massive tent that has two sides and no means to bring these sides together. So for our listeners who are saying, hey, I wanna to contribute to that coalition. I wanna make that coalition happen so that we can begin to see these obviously necessary changes. What can they do? Where can they go? What should they be learning? And maybe what actions can they take? Yeah, I mean, I think that the big tent is such an interesting phrase. Democrats have tried to put together a coalition on a theory that um, the coalition is convenient to all of us, um, that we may have disparate interests, um, but we can all often collaborate. Except that the truth is very often you see defections, and uh, right, so, so that you've got some Democrats who are primarily, whose primary allegiance is to Wall Street or to corporations, and some whose uh, primary allegiance are to racially anxious white voters, and others whose primary allegiance are to working class communities or communities of color. And they can sometimes cooperate, but not in a way that shows sufficient discipline to actually get, to actually pass and defend big changes in the direction of the country. And that's because when it's a coalition of convenience, people defect from the coalition easily. The pivot that we need, and here let me stress, the pivot that is possible is a pivot towards a coalition of necessity, where people understand that the coalition is strictly necessary. And why might they understand that? And how might that be different? 
because a third way is possible. The GOP, the right, and I should say this is more than GOP. This is, this is the right-wing echo chamber, Fox News, Rush Limbaugh. This is also the right-wing think tanks funded by groups like Americans for Prosperity and the Koch brothers um, by Breitbart and the Mercers. What they are doing is they are, they are intentionally shattering social solidarity because they understand that rule by the few rule by the rich depends on breaking the solidarity among the many. That's their basic strategy. Now, Democrats have responded as if they have only two choices, either ignore that that's what's happening or accept that that's what's happening and contest it on the very terrain set out by the right itself, which is to say a supposed conflict between whites and people of color there's a third way. The third way is to understand class war, that we are engaged in class war, and that, the, and that the principal weapon within that class war is racial division. And, the, and the, 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 the most important response to class war waged through racial division is the intentional creation of cross-racial solidarity that builds a class-conscious progressive movement. And, our, and I want to I say that again, because very often when we're talking about race and somebody introduces the phrase class, what they're doing is substituting one for the other, saying, don't focus on race, let's focus on class, right? And that, and that is, you hear that all the time. In fact, that's the class left. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need a fusion politics that links together race and class by understanding that we're in the midst of a class war that the rich are winning, that their principal weapon is racial division. And as a result, the first thing we have to do to get government back on the side of every family in America is to, is to create cross-racial solidarity. That is strictly necessary. That's the fusion politics that makes it apparent to people that the coalition that the Democrats are assembling isn't simply a coalition of people who all have their separate agendas. It's a coalition of people who are fighting a common enemy ruled by the rich, whose main strategy is division. And in response, our principal strategy has to be unity. And, and unity isn't just um, a, a pretty phrase. It's not something we give lip service to. Um, it has to be an actual practice. We have to recommit to the idea that important social institutions have as a principal project the creation of a sense of linked fate among members of our society, right? We have to see that, that, we, that, that um, our fates are linked across all these lines of division. And that has to be something that we intentionally pursue. What we're talking about here is a paradigm change. And, and I say this, right, we're, we're moving from an understanding of racism as fundamentally a problem of whites versus people of color understanding racism as primarily fueled and funded by wealthy elites in a way that threatens all of us. Now, here, when I say paradigm change, I don't mean that this is new. 
In fact, this is a very old idea. This is an idea that arises in uh, rebellions against slavery by unfree labor Africans and European Americans, the sort of uh, Bacon's rebellion in the 1600s. It's the fusion politics immediately after the Civil War. It's Martin Luther King's poor people's campaign in the late 1960s. The idea isn't new, but it is a paradigm change in the sense of being a way of thinking about race and class that we've largely forgotten and that we can't master without a lot of practice, without a lot of practice. And so here I, I wanna direct your listeners attention to a resource that I've put up on the web, um, raceclassacademy.com, race-class-academy.com, raceclassacademy.com. It's a series of short videos plus discussion guides that really walks through all of these ideas, how race has been used as a class weapon, how, the, how progressives have split in their response, what a fused race class politics would look like, what this means in terms of building social solidarity. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that in terms of things that people can do immediately, they can start there as a resource for really grappling with this paradigm change in how we think about what's happened to us and how we build a new multiracial class conscious coalition. Well, I should have known that I would come out of this episode with homework. So <laughs> thank you, Professor. And we can't wait to share this with our listeners. And thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. Thank you once again to Ian for joining us. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Be sure to let us know on Twitter if you're fixing interesting problems using hashtag fixer and tweeting at us at fix underscore cast. Be sure to spread the word. And if you have a generous spirit, be sure to throw us five stars. Kevin loves it. See you next time, fixers. <laughs>